This is an encore presentation from Veritas Radio. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. I always love to hear from you. Tonight's special guest is Dr. John Coleman. We'll discuss the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, the world's lies and propaganda machine. I guarantee you, you will not hear this in the mainstream media. Why? Because they control the media and the minds of the target audience. You'll be glad you listened to tonight's interview in its entirety. Dr. John Coleman will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, go to our website, veritasradio.com and click on the subscribe button. You'll receive your login immediately and we'll have access to everything we have to offer. And don't forget to visit our Veritas store where you can find MMS, our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with seasons one, two, or three, and much more. And to get in touch with me, it's very simple. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. The aim of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations is not to inform you of their controlling actions in our society, but to use scientific methods that are well known to work in discreetly brainwashing the public. It is the core for mass indoctrination and global manipulation. It has also had a profound effect on the moral, spiritual, cultural, political, and economic policies of the United States and Great Britain. It has been the front line of the attack on the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions. No group did more to propagandize the U.S., to participate in World War I at a time when the majority of the American people were opposed to it. Much of the same tactics were used by the social science scientists at Tavistock to get us into World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Serbia, and both wars in Iraq. The people of these nations were unaware that they were being brainwashed. The fall of the dynasties, the Bolshevik Revolution, World War I and World War II, so the destruction of all alliances and boundaries, the convulsions in religion, morals, family life, economic and political conduct, decadence in music and art can all be traced back to mass brainwashing practice by the Tavistock Institute. Dr. John Colpin is a master of more than 100 subjects. He's not one of the rather plentiful newcomers who have lately appeared on the scene. Stationed in 14 countries around the world and speaking several foreign languages puts Dr. Coleman at the head of the field of all writers of conspiracy and secret society books in the U.S. Dr. Coleman's Comedia 300 is published in eight foreign languages, in addition to 15 other titles published in Japan, which are not as yet available in English. In addition, Dr. Coleman has written and published more than 400 monographs, white papers on a wide range of subjects. His groundbreaking reporting continues to earn high praise from around the world. And for an expanded bio of Dr. Coleman, visit our website. And tonight, our focus will be on the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, which you can buy, along with Dr. Coleman's other publications at his website, Coleman300.com. And I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Dr. John Coleman. Hello, Dr. Coleman, and welcome. How are you? Hello, Mel. Thank you for that nice introduction. I'm doing well. I hope you are, too. I am, certainly, and it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on. And, and so that the audience knows, Dr. Cohen, I've heard your work being quoted by Jim Mars, David Icke, and, and others, but it was a conversation I had with the late Dr. Fred Bell a few years ago. He told me, if I wanted to know what was happening behind the scenes and how it is done, that I needed to look into your work. And years later, we finally have you on. Well, I don't want to say bad things about anybody. We don't have all much time. But David Ikes, of course, copied all my work letter for letter. And um, I think he's probably one of the worst plagiarists of, the, of this uh, era here. And, of course, uh, 
I don't think that I would like to uh, say more than that. Okay, that's fine. Well, let's start from the beginning. What motivated you to look into the Tavistock Institute, which is an ultra-secret organization? How did you expose it? I first came across the Tavistock Institute when I was looking through papers in the British Museum in London, which is um, not open to the public. There's a certain part of it which is closed to the public, and it's only open to people who have been in some kind of a service to the British government. And, of course, that qualified me to go in there, and I had several very good mentors who gave me the papers I asked for, and by paging through these, I should say reading them, which I did for a period of five years, I was eventually able to amass, amass a, uh, a number of um, papers that enabled me to put this book together. And in there, I found out all about the Tavistock Institute. And for a lot of people who, who listen to us, they, they, heard, they have heard the, the term Tavistock a lot, but... Just to define it, since you have become an expert, tell us how it all started in 1913 at uh, Wellington House. Well, there were two brothers, actually, who ran Wellington House, the Harmsworth brothers, and they were called Alfred and Harold. Then they were given the title Lords Rothmere, Rothermere, and Lord Northcliffe, and they were given the task of propagandizing the British public into going to war in the First World War. Now, you have to understand that the British people were not at all disposed to go to war against Germany. They had no quarrel with Germany whatsoever. Furthermore, Queen Victoria was a direct relation of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And uh, in order to get the British people to agree to go to war, they had to be propagandized so that they would believe that the German people were barbarians and very ruthless, and they started out on the uh, Kaiser von Helm. They showed him in a German uniform, standing over children he'd shot with his service revolver. Then they showed him um, with the hands of the children chopped off. All imaginary drawings they put in to inflame the people into going into the war. And in order to keep that inflamed atmosphere going, they later did something even worse, which we'll come to as we continue. And eventually the British people who had been 80% against the war were persuaded that Germany was a bad country and needed to be taken down. And the reason why Britain went to war in the first place was that the uh, British government was jealous exceedingly envious of the German nation, which had become very prosperous and industrialized after the First World War. And they had taken over a lot of the trade in Europe, especially in the Danube Basin, that had previously been held by Great Great Britain. And so Lord Grey and uh, King George VI did a secret trip to France, and they signed a pact with the French people, which stated that in the event that France was ever attacked by Germany, the British army would come to the rescue or to the aid of France. They didn't tell how they proposed to get the troops to Germany and what would become of them. And uh, the British people were eventually persuaded by propaganda, false propaganda, false lies, because that's what propaganda is, mm -hmm. uh, to go into this war. And we know what happened. The casualties were horrendous and fearsome. So, in essence, this organization was formed to shape propaganda and break the resistance against war, manipulating public opinion and directing the manufactured opinion down the desired pathway to support anything, in this case, a declaration of war. So, in essence, the Tavistock Institute was formed to do just that, to get us into wars? Yes, that's, uh, that was the purpose. That was their mandate. And they were first of all financed by the royal family, and then they got funding from the Rothschilds after that, which is not surprising. The Rothschilds have been involved in funding almost every war 
except perhaps the Napoleonic Wars, and I'm not sure about that. They might have been in fun, involved in that as well. And they usually funded both sides of whatever the combatants were, so they could reap a double benefit. And a few decades ago in, in the United States, uh, and you, you, you obviously know this, and I suspect around the world, media outlets were owned by several companies. Now they're owned by just a few, six or seven in the United States. Are these conglomerates part of Tavistock? It is indeed, yes, absolutely. And who funds it today? Today the Rothschilds have taken over the financing of Tavistock in its entirety. Some people say that the Rothschilds and Rockefellers are two different camps, but in reality they work together, don't they? They work very, very closely together because their interests are the same to reap huge financial gain for themselves, and therefore they work in harmony so that that goal is achieved, and both parts, both different people could get what they desire, that is this huge war profit and swell the coffers of their, their, their holdings. I know uh, there's plenty of terms that came about from Tavistock, including mass brainwashing. Did that come with, from Tavistock as well? That was, an, that was one of the words that was invented, and I called it Tavistock English. And uh, mass brainwashing was the words that were used uh, to induce people to think that the massive lie that they were being fed on was actually the truth. And to convince them so well that the people, in having been totally opposed, were swung in the exact opposite direction and then supported the causes which they had so vehemently opposed in the first instance. It's another example for uh, the term collateral damage. It's, it's another one so that people can accept the fact that, yes, this happens in war, right? Yes, but they failed to say that. They didn't want to say that we had so many people killed because that might have awoken the American people and all people to the sense that, look, lives are being lost here. This is a terrible tragedy. It must be stopped. So they called it collateral damage. But in essence, they're talking about war casualties. People have been killed. Soldiers have been killed. And I know you also wrote another book, which uh, could and should be the theme of a future interview. I'm referring to the Committee of 300. Briefly, because it's not the focus of, of today's interview, briefly tell us what is the Committee of 300 and the term Olympians. The Committee of 300 was formed out of the opium trade with the Far East. It first of all, was called the East India Company, when uh, they were sent out to the east with their small ships. And in fact, in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, they stopped at the Cape of Good Hope to get uh, refueling of water, fresh water and vegetables and fruit. And then they made their way to see the moguls of India, very, very rich people. And uh, they were beyond, rich beyond belief. And they actually introduced these people to the opium poppy by putting opium seeds in their tea and uh, giving them a, punch, a sense of total serenity so that the Indians were able to make a deal with them in which they were the beneficiaries. And then, in later years, they let them into the secret so that we had their American counterparts, like they had to sign Perkins, the Cabots, the Lodgers, people who said of themselves that they spoke only to each other and to God, and they amassed enormous fortunes also out of the opium trade with the Far East. And so the Committee of 300 was eventually granted a charter to wage war, to conduct negotiations, and to make peace treaties. Can you imagine a private company, that was the East India, British East India Company, a private company in America being allowed to make peace treaties and make war with other nations and to uh, and to, to do all things that belong to the state, actually. So the, the Committee of 300 eventually usurped the, the functions and the power of the state. So is it safe to say that the state 
reports to the Committee of 300. Absolutely, they do this through an organization called Chatham House in London, and that houses the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And the Royal International Affairs gives its daily orders to the President of the United States. Now, not a lot of people are not going to believe this, but research will show you that this is the absolute truth and nothing but the truth. And those orders were conveyed to the Wall Street uh, Morgan Company, who then sent their emissary daily to the White House in order to give them a briefing of what was expected of them and what they had to do. In fact, Wilson, President Wilson, had a red phone, a line connected straight to the Tavistock people and uh, to Morgan to get his daily briefings. So if he needed an explanation of anything, he uh, called them up directly and spoke directly with him. And during the, the interview, I'm going to be mentioning a lot President Woodrow Wilson, which in my opinion, and I hope I'm not offending people, may have been one of the biggest traitors this country has ever seen. Would you agree? I think that he ranks with Roger Casement and all of the others, and I think that what he deserved was to be removed from office, impeached, and then tried for treason, and he found guilty, should have been given a penalty of banishment in public life. Yes, and I say this because he really tried to hurry the, the Federal Reserve Act so that we could get into war, and immediately after, they passed the... Uh, the uh, uh, tax, uh, the Federal Tax uh, Revenue Act. Was that coincidental? That all happened almost at the same time? It happened in 19, I think it was... Uh, 13? 1913. Right. When he said they were going to revise and update the, uh, the taxing system. But what they did was Wilson com- completely abandoned it and put in a brand new form of taxation, which was, in fact, a yoke around the neck of the American people. Because if you read the, the, if you read what the founding fathers had to say about taxation, they said that taxation could not be imposed on anybody in the United States except if the people themselves in the states were willing to be taxed to pay for roads and services, bridges, and so on. Dr. Coleman, for some reason, my recording equipment is giving me some trouble. Can you hold for one second, please? Please hold. Okay, I'm back. I apologize. This has never happened in hundreds of shows when this fails. And uh, I wouldn't doubt that somebody's trying to uh, prevent this interview from happening. So let, let's proceed. I'm not surprised that it's happened many, many times before with other stations where inexplicably things have happened. And in some cases, they were so bad that to abandon the program. So uh, I think this is the type of thing that's we are going to see occurring much more in the future. Well, the only time this had ever happened was with the scientists who discussed uh, anti-gravity and how you this could happen, and we were disconnected 20-some times, but let, let's proceed. You say Tavistock by 1937 had come a long way from, from the 1913 uh, anti-war and opinion was changed. Now, the, the new war was coming up again. Right now, we have more or less the same script taking place, drums of war with, uh, with Iran. Do you think this is alive and well, Tavistock, alive and well today? Oh, they're very much alive and well today. But I'd like to go back to the point where this propaganda became a great success. Sure. The Harmsworth brothers were given titles to make them sound more important. And their newspaper was the vehicle whereby the troops on the front line were kept in touch with the events on the home front so that the soldiers were made to feel not so isolated because, you know, it didn't have the communications today that we have. And so uh, they bundled up hundreds of copies of their paper and sent them out free of charge to the troops in the front line. And this way, they kept the morale high. Hmm. And the reason for that is they wish to prolong the war because the longer the war lasts, the more money the proponents of that war and the propagators of that war, the more money comes to their coffers. 
they can conceal the truth from the people by talking about collateral damage. And I always thought that uh, what really made the U.S. population accept our involvement into World War One was the sinking of the Lusitania, which was a British ship, but it carried 200 Americans. But you're saying the Tavistock propaganda was already in place, and the derogatory term, which we keep hearing right now, whenever Dr. Ron Paul says we need to stop these wars and get out of all those hundreds of U.S. bases, they call him an isolationist. That's another term coming from Tavistock English, isn't it? Yes, it was used to describe uh, and make unpopular anybody who was opposed to the war. And because they were opposed to the war, they were called uh, isolationists. In other words, they said they wanted to keep America isolated. They didn't want America to become a world power. Mm. They wanted America to mind its own business and stay within its own borders. And so they called them isolationists. So as, that, for Ron, as for Ron Paul, he's the only uh, contender for this uh, White House who knows the U.S. Constitution. I would like to take some credit for that, having sent him many, many of my papers many years ago and my book, What You Should Know About the U.S. Constitution, which discusses all of those things and, of course, tells you why... Nobody can be called the commander-in-chief until the title has been conferred upon them by the Congress. It's not a title like the U.S. president, but they keep calling these would-be presidents commander-in-chief. You're not the commander-in-chief until Congress has met in special session and conferred that title upon you. It's not interchangeable with the word president, for instance. So when did it all of a sudden become a trendy word for a president to use. I'm sorry, again, I lost you for a few seconds there. Sure, the term commander-in-chief, all of a sudden, it's almost the same word as president. When did it change that it became all-encompassing? 1943 was the title of the year I've got marked down in my records. Okay. Now let's look into more of the details. There was actually an advisory committee a body of uh, managers and a body of advisors to advise President Woodrow Wilson in his decision-making. If this was happening in the early 1900s, how different is it now? I guess what I'm asking is, how has Tavistock changed since then? It's changed uh, to a remarkable degree because in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet, they had actually no say in making policy or carrying out policy in the present day situation, you find that these cabinet officers are making policy and using it as the foreign policy of the country, which they have no right to do whatsoever. And I didn't know that uh, this either. President Woodrow Wilson was the first American president to publicly proclaim himself in favor of a socialist new world order inside a socialist one world government. All of this happened after he also signed the Federal Reserve Act. How is it that the American public isn't aware of this? The American people didn't know because they'd been lulled into a false sense of oblivion by the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. They had been taught that everything that the president says is the gospel truth, when that, of course, is very, very far from being anywhere near the truth, usually. And if at the time the United States was enjoying prosperity and industrial expansion, as he had never experienced before in history, why did Woodrow Wilson denounce capitalism by saying, quote, it is contrary to the common man and it has brought stagnation to our freedom, unquote. Why did this happen? Woodrow Wilson wanted to usher America into the new world order. And in order to do that, the nation had to be pliant, they had to be subservient to the orders that were given to it, and they, if they had a different uh, class, a, a very powerful middle class, and America is unique in history, that it had the only viable middle class in the history of the world. By that I mean that they were working, they were producing goods and services in, in the United States, and by that I mean industrial machinery, plant machinery, farm machinery, all types of things like that nature, and they were, of course, a prosperous nation, and as long as they were prosperous, 
they could not be forced into this new world order. So is this why they continue to, for example, now they're completely getting rid of the middle class? Is this to bring us to our knees so that we can beg for a new form of government and economy? Of course, this was, this was forced on the United States when an effort was, a distinctive effort was made by the French aristocrat society to force on the United States an act of industrial espionage almost in that they decided that this had to go. The United States industries had to be destroyed and with it the middle class. And the purpose again of that, as I said, was to usher in the United States closer into a new world order. Today we have the United States is slowly, slowly coming now back, slowly, slowly recovering. The industries that relocated in foreign countries to get away from the onerous taxation and the heavy cost of producing goods are now coming back one by one. And the United States is again having its middle class restored. Going back to World War I, it seems that the phrase every war starts with a lie is so true because that one started with a lie. Then um, uh, we have in the 90s weapons of, uh, in, in the 2000s, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, now nuclear weapons in Iran, and the script continues, doesn't it? You have to have, a, you have, to have an enemy. The enemy has to be described, and the leader of that country must be described as an absolute beast. That's why the Kaiser Helm was required, was described as a ruthless Bosch, a murderer, and they showed cartoon drawings of the stories that had happened during World War I, where his whole platoons of Germans had descended upon this one village in France and raped all of the women in the middle of the town in the square on a table. And so after the war, uh, at least right, not after the war, but just soon after 1915, Clarence Darrow, who was an American icon, decided that he'd had enough of this. He didn't believe that the, American, that the Germans were anything like this at all. And so he went over to France, and he set about finding out from this particular village how many women had been raped, and he offered a reward which today would be like something like $27,000 in today's money, mm -hmm. to any woman who had come forward and offer absolute proof that she'd been raped by the Germans. Not a single French woman came forward. And then he said, I'm going to offer the mothers of any children who had their arms, their hands cut off, and their bodies mutilated by the Germans sold by the Kaiser Wilhelm's order German soldiers had done this to them. I'm going to give them not quite as much money as it would have been today, $20,000. And again, not a single mother came forward to claim what was, after all, a very substantial reward. So that proves to me and to everybody it should do that all wars are based on a lie. And then we had the, we had the same thing with President Hussein. He was called the Butcher of Baghdad. He was called a vile beast. He was called every epithet of the, under the sun was held at him because the Tavistock Institute, in order for the war to be forwarded into Iraq, they had to have a leader who was an absolute degenerate and would stop at nothing. And so Hussein, was a, who was a relatively harmless man, a lot of people are going to be astonished to hear that, whose only quarrel was with Kuwait, was, fell into the hands of a woman called Margaret Gillespie of the U.S. State Department. And she went over to see him. And he asked her, no, hang on a minute, she was actually the... The, the ambassador, uh, April Gillespie, the ambassador. April Gillespie, she was the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. Right. And so he asked for, she asked for an interview with him, and as I talked about the pending war, if it was going to be a war or not, and she said, she told him 
He said, I want to teach Kuwait a lesson. They've stolen my oil. They've gone into the Romania oil field sideways running. There again, assisted by the British. And remember, at that time, there was no actual border. There was no country called Kuwait. The British had just taken the line and drawn it through the sand of the desert and said, this is now Kuwait. Of course, they took the lands where the Romalia oil fields, Valiats, lay. And so Hussein said, I want to go in there and teach them to a lesson and stop them from thieving their oil from my country, which belongs to our people. April Glasby said to him, we have no interest whatsoever in protecting Kuwait or anything that you do in the Middle East. In virtue, she said, not in so many words, but in so many words, she said, you have a free hand to do what you like. And the next day, he invaded Kuwait. He, he he was given the all clear, and a lot of people don't know the exact thing that happened. Kuwait was using new technology, and they were slant drilling, taking Iraq's oil, and basically were giving the green light. But one thing, Dr. Coleman, that I that I could never understand, the the obviously it was a setup. He went to invade, and of course George Bush uh, uh, Senior invaded, started the, the the war with Iraq, but. That seemed inconclusive. Why wasn't that conflict finished at the time, in 1991? Well, George Bush Sr., again, I don't know who was the biggest liar here, George Bush Sr. or his son, um, he claimed that he'd been attacked by Iraqi assassins, that an attempt was made on his life while mm -hmm. he was visiting Iraq. It turned out to be uh, that the people they arrested, the Iraqi government arrested for this, crime turned out to be itinerant smugglers whose only crime was that they were smuggling goods into Iraq and they came somewhere near to the, to the villa where George Bush was staying. They never saw him had any contact with him and they were arrested and shot for, wood, for attempting to murder President Bush Sr. So that, as I said, all wars are started on a contrived situation. Something that's not that is not the truth, but is held out and presented as truth. And and I can never forget, Dr. Coleman, watching the images live. And I think this was the pivotal moment when the American people finally said, we need to go after Saddam. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you discuss it in detail. I'm referring to the the young woman allegedly from Kuwait who came to, uh, to uh, Congress explaining how she witnessed Iraqi soldiers removing the babies from the incubators and leaving them to die on the cold floor. And she was none other than the daughter of the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. She was. She was the Iranian ambassador to the United States. She had been coached and trained by this, uh, these Tavistock Institute people what to say. And she came and lied through her teeth in front of the U.S. Congress which is a crime, by the way, in America. Of course. And she told a sub story about how she'd gone in and seen the incubators where the Iraqi soldiers were spearing and killing the babies who had just been born, and uh, all types of atrocities. Every single one of those stories was a lie. She came from the Al-Sabah family, and, of course, she was spirited out of the country very swiftly after that before the authorities get their hands on her. So any manner of contract situation, however gruesome, however bizarre, however untrue, is used to get the American people, and all peoples in Europe, everywhere they may be, any time a war is wanted to start, or they want a war to start, they use these methods, unscrupulous to the last degree. Didn't her father, the ambassador, of the Kuwaiti ambassador, give... Hilton and Knowles, which was a public relations company, $600,000 to perpetrate this lie? He paid, he paid Hilton and Knowles. Now, Hilton and Knowles, oh, no, not Hilton and Knowles, Benton and Knowles, I beg your pardon. Okay. He paid this massive, under this massive advertising agency, one of the biggest in the world, in London, all over the world. They're in the United States, too. And he paid them $600,000 to coach his daughter and tell them what tell her how she was to handle herself in front of the Senate. That was incredible. Now let's let's change course for a second. Here's something interesting. Isn't it ironic that the United States, being the biggest capitalist country in the world, 
They're borrowing money from China, the biggest communist country in the world. How do you make sense of that? Well, labels have been dropped, you know. <clears throat> we no longer call them communists. They are, I think China's probably the only country that we call communists, with the exception of North Vietnam, which is really an appendage of China, because they depend entirely on China for all of the, their uh, goods and services. Mm -hmm. And that's how they pay this huge and massive army. I think it's 1.5 million men under arms. And uh, this is the way they've done it, by China subsidizing them and giving them uh, the wealth that they need, the money that they need. And so China and North Vietnam remain probably the two remaining communist countries in the world today. How about Cuba? Cuba? Cuba's also another one, but you know, it was a very minor player on the world scene. But why is it is Cuba left with this embargo after 50 years, being so close to the United States, when I know somebody in, in the uh, one of the automakers who was approached by Cuba a few years ago. They wanted to buy 25,000 vehicles for their fleet. And uh, he was told, sorry, but we can't sell Cuba anything at this point, which is detrimental to our economy. Well, Cuba was supposed to be a communist outpost only a very short distance from the shores of the United States. And they were saying that the Cubans were being smuggled into America to do all, manage of, all manner of damage and so, and an embargo was imposed upon not only the uh, import of any of their goods, but also upon any Cubans coming into the United States, except to say that the powers that be, the men in high positions who like to smoke cigars, uh, didn't stop at that. They ordered hundreds of boxes of Cuban cigars at a time. It's difficult to understand now. How shall I put it? They would break any rules to keep their creature comforts going. And you say the Committee of 300 rules the United States and that in the early 1900s we were distracted with bread and circuses. And today it is sports, Hollywood, and Social Security. Nothing has changed except the players, isn't it? Well, that's how the Romans got their people under subjugation. Caesar said, give them bread, and when he said there's been a rebellion or near rebellion in the colonies or in Rome, near Rome, he said, give them bread and circuses to the people of Rome. And by this means, he pacified the people of Rome, and uh, there was no rebellion. By doing that, of course. And has something prevented the New World Order and a one-world government from taking place? And if so, what has derailed them or delayed them? Or is it here? And we just don't know it, and freedom, our Bill of Rights, and our Constitution are just part of the illusion. Well, I think the American people who should know the Constitution do not. You know, when I uh, wanted to become an American citizen in 1972, I was under the strong belief that everybody who was an American knew the Constitution. Of course, I was proved sadly wrong, but at that time I didn't know it. So I went, got an introduction to a very wonderful man, probably the best constitutional of this century, and that was the uh, great uh, senator from North Carolina, Senator Irvin, deceased. And uh, he told me in a very fatherly way, when I asked him, I said, Senator, what college or university would you recommend to me so that I can go to that college and gain a degree in the U.S. Constitution. And he said, none. So I said, oh, did I hear you are right, Senator? Did you say none? He said, yes, I said none, because none of them teach the Constitution. He said they might teach the various clauses and parts of the Constitution that every can, everybody can parallel. But the real in-depth profundity of the Constitution, they do not teach. So I cannot recommend any school. But he said, if you really want to know about the Constitution, first of all, you have to have tenacity of purpose. And he looked at me and he said, you look to me like the kind of a person who has that. So what you've got to do is find every copy you can lay your hands on of the Annals of Congress, 
the Congressional Globes and the Congressional Records. And he said to me, I'll start you off by giving you what I have here in my office. And he handed me a stack of these papers. He said, the rest you can get from the U.S. Uh, printer. Now, I don't think you've ever seen a congressional record copy. It's printed in very fine lettering, and it's on both sides of the pages. And I think in order to deceive people who really want to find out their subjects, the titles of the bills are headed, on a, headed under entirely different headings. For instance, there might be a, a uh, declaration of war being discussed on the floor of the Senate, and that would be hidden under the title of some agricultural bill. So you literally have to go through this stack of papers and weed out all of the information that you want. And I had eventually got a stack of 37,000 37, pages of those doc these documents, and I formed my own color coding system, and I was able to read and weed out what the U.S. Constitution actually had to say about all manner of subjects. And that is where I gained enough information to write my book, What You Should Know About the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And this is what uh, you sent uh, Dr. Ron Paul. That's when I think, that's what I've sent Dr. Ron Paul. Yeah. And... Going back to President Woodrow Wilson again, and, and, and it, folks, Tavistock is not only dealing with war, it's also dealing with business and trade. And I'm looking here in 1913 when President Wilson spent almost a year tearing down the protective trade tariffs that had defended the American domestic market from being overwhelmed by free trade, essentially allowing cheap British goods made with uh, cheap labor in India. This sounds almost as, as what's happening today. Clinton, Bush, with the, 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 all these free trade agreements. Now we have China. And as I always say, I think World War III has already happened and not a bomb was dropped and we lost it. We lost our industrial base to China. What do you think about that? That's exactly what happened. And as I said, we uh, in the beginning, <clears throat> we had a unique middle class that could make things that they could consume themselves, and then they didn't need to import all these free trade things through World Trade uh, Communications, through GATT and NAFTA, and North American Free Trade with Mexico. They were able to produce what they needed, in the way of clothes and shoes and goods of that nature. Now, today, if you go into any shoe store and look at every pair of shoes in the shop, I think without exception, you'll find stamped on the inner side, underneath it and the, just below, above the heel, made in China. Mm -hmm. We no longer have any of those industries left in the United States. But slowly, slowly, some of them are returning. And some people say to me, Mel, you need to buy American. But I always tell them, if you give me two items, one is $10 and one is 50 what, what is the incentive for an American to go and buy the $50 one just because it's been in the USA? People are governed by price. Yes. What they buy. You can say what you like. You can say all manner of things that this is more attractive and that and that and so on and so forth. But it comes down to one thing. People will buy on price. Yes. Price alone dictates what they buy. And you can go into a shop and it can have shirts made in the U.S. and they'd be a lot more and more expensive than shirts made in China. There's no incentive for them. They will not go and buy the shirts made in America they buy the cheapest item on the shelves, which turns out to be made in China. And that situation seems to be irreversible, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is now. I would say that it's just the door is closed, the horse is bolted from the stable. There's no chance of those days ever being revived again. So how do we replace the industrial base? I remember in the late 70s and 80s when the computer replaced a lot of, 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 of personnel in most companies. We seem to have been fine. 
All of a sudden, we became, we became more productive with less people. So at least we got, we got out of that. But with the industrial base, and I know you discussed, you even wrote a, 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 a paper. And I used to fly to Allentown, Pennsylvania in the late 80s and early 90s. And I remember seeing the skeletons of what was left of the steel industry in the, East, in the Northeast. That was another conspiracy, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was. And uh, I don't like to say that I'm a prophet and could see these things, but I forecast them based on solid information, solid information which is very, very hard to come by. At the time when I wrote that, these places were prosperous. These rail yard lines were buzzing, with, streaming with uh, rail cars, the rolling mills and the seal fills. Seal factories were working two shifts, and the coal mines were working at full speed. And all those things vanished, except the small minor coal mines still functioning. But that's, of course, to supply coal for export. And it's one of the few remaining exports that we can do successfully. And I know the, the following is not covered in your book, but I have to leverage your presence here today and, and ask you. A few years after 9-11 happened, I started looking at the similarities between what happened in Nazi Germany and what happened here. They had their Reichstag fire. We had 9-11. They had the Enabling Act. We have the Patriot Act. They had fatherland security. We have homeland security. And I could go on and on. I always say... Sorry, Sorry. Yeah, I'm just saying, I always say the script continues. What do you think of these parallels? I think that is very true. I would like to add in the, in the war there, Second World War, when the Reichstag was bombed, they blame it on the Dutchman they caught trying to cross the border back into Germany, back into Holland. And they arrested this guy, and he was he was mentally retarded. They said he was responsible for bombing the Reichstag, and of course he was executed. So you always have to find the villain. There has to be a villain. And but I, I guess what I'm asking, and sorry for interjecting, what I'm asking is how is it that people don't get the similarities between what they had, even by name, enabling act. Uh, Patriot Act, Fatherland Security, Homeland Security, and we're not even a homeland. We're composed of, of sovereign states, not a homeland. America's composed of 50 independent sovereign states. Right. And if you don't believe me, go and look at the Treaty of Virginia. It had a treaty with the sovereign state of Virginia, and nothing was altered to change that treaty, which is still in effect today. So there's your proof that we are sovereign, independent states. We are not one homeland, as you said, and I'll say in my book. We're not. We're not like France or Germany or Italy or England, for that matter. We aren't. We are 50 different independent countries. And going back for, to, to 1913 for a second, do you think that without the Federal Reserve Act, World War I would not have started at least our involvement, the United States? It could never start it because wars require huge sums of money, enormous sums of money that are not can only be visualized by the common man as such a thing if common man exists. The ordinary people on the street, they have no conception of the amount of money that it takes to wage war. So in order to get around that, the uh, Federal Reserve was instituted by Wilson, in order to start printing masses of, of U.S. money, we don't have money. We have currency, greenbacks, some mm -hmm. people call it. Other people call it the U.S. dollar. Masses of U.S. dollars in order to finance the war. You know, it goes back to the days of Kublai Khan, the great conqueror of Europe. He started out with a mess, massive invasion, and his troops were all-powerful, swept everything before them because they were paid in gold. Then he ran out of his gold supply and he paid them in silver. And then he ran out of that and so he paid them in lead. And it got to that, they would not fight, they turned around and went home. And that's when his whole empire collapsed. So if we had to fight wars today with true money, which is only real money is gold and silver, we would not be able to wage any wars 
because we do not have any reserves or any large quantities of gold in our treasury. For that reason, the subterfuge of Federal Reserve notes was instituted, and then, of course, we called them dollars. And the late great Louis McFadden, Louis T. McFadden, once described the Federal Reserve bank system as the greatest fraud known in the history of mankind. He said, rose in the House one day, I'm sorry, on the floor of the Senate, and he said, there's not a man in this House within the sound of my voice who does not know that the Federal Reserve Bank system is the most corrupt financial institution in the history of the world. And I think that puts it in very good perspective. So, to get back to your question, we could not have gone into World War II, let alone all the wars that followed, if it were not that we have got the people in America, not only in America, but all over the world, to accept American dollar notes as reserve currency. And that is how we were able to finance all of our wars. But if you told an average American, if you told them, look, Woodrow Wilson was pressured to get us into war, but we didn't have the money, or we were not going to be able to get the money. So he rushed the Federal Reserve Act. And not only that, slavery, in my opinion, was never abolished. It was transformed. And in this case, with the Federal Income Tax Act, that's how they were able to get us to pay for the war. And that way, we just got into it as slaves. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, the, the war between the states, also known as the Civil War, was not fought over slavery at all. It was fought over economic issues. The United States was producing all the income revenue for the country, but was shipping the cotton out of the port of New York, and of course the money was coming in and going into the banks in New York, and the southern states were getting none of it. And so they went to war with the North to make this uh, situation better, that they would get the equal amount of, of, of say, it was due, what was due to them. And um, we know the outcome of that war, terrible loss of life, the whole of the South totally destroyed, the North remained virtually uh, unscathed because its industries were heavy industries, they were not based on any cotton or anything of that nature, and their workforce had remained undiluted. In other words, they had, did not have too many Negro slaves in the North. So those few that were there were actually owned by the people in high positions. Mrs. Lincoln, for instance, owned several uh, Negro slaves. I think it was General Ulysses Grant owned about 200 of them. But it was not the massive slavery that was uh, so prevalent in the South. And please allow me to, to read this excerpt from your book, because I think it's very important. Quote, Tavistock has the majority of the American people profiled and brainwashed. If any part of the American public's ever able to identify the cause of the crisis that have washed over this nation in the past 70 years, the social engineering structure built by Tavistock will come crashing down. But that has not happened yet. Tavistock continues to drown the American public in his sea of created public opinion, unquote. And I've lost count, Dr. Coleman, on how many times I talk about similar subjects, whether 9-11 or our election process being rigged. And most people say to me, well, Mel, and why would they do that? They don't believe you. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're, you're, a, you're subversive. You're agitating. The mere fact that they say that proves that the plan is working, isn't it? Absolutely. Of course it's working. That's the proof of, of the whole thing. When you get called those names, it's, it's exactly proof that they are have working. Now, how do you reverse that? How do you? How can you wake people up? I don't think the up? individual can do that. I don't think the individual has any power to reverse anything. But so it would, ha it would have to be the collective. Here's a solution. If we had a collection from the states, and my suggestion was that we have local committees that get together and meet and find out who's interested, and then we have larger meetings throughout the state and choose a select group of people to go to Washington. 
And then we do that with all of the states and get them together so that we all arrive in Washington at the same time. And then we go to the Senate and demand to be heard. And believe me, the Senate would not be able to refuse that. And then you make your case. And that, of course, is a solution, but I don't know if it's ever put into practice. I have to ask you, and, and as, I'm, as I was reading your book, a few thoughts came to mind. And the first thought was, we really need to protect Dr. Coleman. And this is something that, with all these new draconian laws, the, 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 the freedom of speech that seems to be eroding every day, have you ever faced any kind of uh, intimidation? No. I've, I've been, had letters from the Tavistock Institute saying that I'm crossing the line and I should be careful what I say, but apart from that, I've not had any, any threats whatsoever. I mean, the, when I wrote the Committee of 300, the genie was out of the bottle. It couldn't be put back again by any means. Because if they, they were to uh, subvert or destroy you, more people would become familiar with your work. Was that it? I'm sure that's it. Some people, when they begin, they have no followers. But if something happens to them, people say, well, something must. He must have had the truth because they wouldn't take such notice of him. And I think that's what is my case. And one thing that comes to mind that we haven't had a world war since 1945 is that the new types of wars, the new enemies, is the terrorism boogeyman that allows us to have endless regional wars. And this way, the war machine is in business in a more long-term basis. Is that what you you see happening right now? Oh, I'm sure that's what, what's happened. I'm sure. There's no doubt about it in my mind whatsoever that that is what's happening. Because we don't have a nation. Um, I mean, let's take 9-11. None of the, the hijackers were Afghans. Why didn't we go and attack Saudi Arabia instead, if allegedly it was mostly Saudi Arabians who... who well, they were who'd... all from Saudi Arabia, with the exception of one, I think. And uh, yet we didn't go and attack Saudi Arabia, as you say, because Saudi Arabia is a friend of ours. And it's exactly. And a big supply of oil, it was, and still is. So... We didn't want to risk falling out with them. And we said, right. well, we'll have to look elsewhere to see who the miscreants were. But to this day, nobody can tell us who actually was responsible for 9-11. We know the individuals were from Egypt, but there was a far greater plan. I mean, these guys couldn't fly a plane. My son is an airline captain, and he... Uh, he said, these guys, these Egyptians, they've been to a flying school and they hadn't even qualified to fly a little Cessna. So right. how are you going to tell me that they were flying these four-engine jets like fighter planes, winging and swinging away and coming in sideways on the wingtips, pointed to the ground? He said, these maneuvers are complex and they require tremendous skill. And the only thing that he could think of was that these maneuvers were conducted from the ground. Now, I know from uh, certain people who know the FAA regulations, my son didn't tell me this, but these people who know FAA regulations said these planes were controlled from the ground. Somebody on the ground was controlling these planes, and every plane has a mechanism in it to prevent yes. hijacking, which allows the ground control to take control of that aircraft and prevent it from being hijacked, or else be used for subversive purposes, like swinging the thing through the air and turning sideways and crashing through the building. I've also heard that. I have uh, family members who are high-ranking members of major airlines, and I've also confirmed this with other people, Boeing and, and the rest. Most American airplane manufacturers have equipped the planes since the 19, early 1980s, because you remember in the 70s with all the hijackings, they set the airplanes up with this technology where they could actually be taken over. There's an override. So you don't need the hijackers because all you need to do is to take over from, from the ground and land them safely. So this is another <laughs> another lie, isn't it? Of course there's another lie, and it's a huge lie, too. You can imagine, you know, 
These guys couldn't even qualify, these Egyptians. They could not even qualify to fly a tiny little single-engine Cessna. They failed their test. Now all of a sudden they go out and they can fly these huge jets, take them over in flight, steer them around, uh, recharter their course uh, without anybody telling them how to read or what to do, where the maps are, anything. And they fly in different directions. It's common sense if you think about it. You can see how impossible that was for for them to do. And uh, I don't know if you know John Lear, who I believe lives not too far from where you are. You know who John Lear is? John Lear, the, the inventor of the Learjet. Actually, the son, the son of the inventor. Well, anyway, mass communication, I'm polling. Let's, we, we have a one and only intermission, uh, Dr. Coleman. But when we come back, I want to talk about the mass communication and the polling, which is so prevalent these days, and, and, and it makes people be persuaded to go one way or the other. But tell us once again how to get in touch with your work, buy your books, buy this, this great book, the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. You can go to our website, which is Coleman, that's my name, 300 dot com, which lists all of the books and you can order from there, or you can call 800-942-0821 and order by phone. Again, the number is 800-942-0821, and the website is coleman300.com, and you'll find up there all of the prices of the books as well. And I have to tell you, I haven't read the Comedia 300 yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And there's an open invitation for you to return in the future for that one. But in the meantime, I have the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And folks, I have to tell you, it's one of those books that when you start reading it, you think, how is, how, how is Dr. Coleman allowed to talk about this? Because the information is absolutely incredible. Well, I don't like to talk too, too much about it. I don't want to put ideas in people's minds. <laughs> I try to avoid the subject as much as possible. In fact... Other than you, I've tamped down very quickly on people who started to talk about that. And I have tried for years, and finally I compelled Dr. Coleman to come on the show. But please, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dr. Coleman. We have so much more to discuss. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the members section. Enjoy.
This is Charlotte Iserbate, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. <laughs> 